The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Welcome back, and this is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and we are tracking today's trending news. I am joined in this hour by LA Times columnist Erica Smith. Welcome back, Erica. Thanks for having me. I think you might be muted. Or maybe. Don't think so. I'm also joined in this hour by Cron reporter Kennedy Sessions. Welcome back, Kennedy. Hi, how are you doing? All right, ladies. So glad to have both of you back today. Uh, I don't know. Are either of you Catholics? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I am not either. Okay, so you may not have been as shocked and stunned and irritated and frustrated as I was when reading this article that one group of priests are putting, you know, data tracking apps on other groups of priests and then taking that information and giving it over to the bishops under the guise of trying to give them information that will, you know, help with the training of priests. Uh, you don't have to be Catholic to be outraged to know that one set of people are tracking the behaviors and conduct and movement of another group of people. What do you think about that, Erica? I mean, I think kind of you alluded to this in your, your monologue. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons people aren't going to church as much, you know, as they are in the past. And, you know, interest in religion has declined over the last what decade or so. Um, you know, I think, you know, this kind of behavior, whether it's from the Catholic Church or, you know, from whatever religious institution is scary, I think, for a number of reasons. But I also think the broader implications about, you know, spy, using technology to spy on people is something that is increasingly a concern as, you know, big tech um, becomes a, a bigger force in our society and that our regulations don't seem to be able to keep up with that um, innovation and that advancement in a way that protects uh, the rights and privacy of, of Americans and of people worldwide, because as we all know, the internet is not just the U.S. So it's concerning, uh, but not all that surprising either, though. Yeah, Kennedy, they seem to think that this is okay because they found that some of these priests are on uh, dating sites like Grindr and, you know, other sites, I guess, where uh, gay folks go to find dates and they're like outing these priests like, hey, we found this information and let's give it to the bishops who are technically, I guess, the bosses of these priests. Uh, what do you make of this? I mean, it, it just feels so homophobic. It feels so discriminatory to me. You know, just I don't know. I, I love the Catholic Church, but boy, do they do some messed up stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was honestly, like, not really surprised looking at a lot of, you know, inconsistencies, to say the least, that we've seen coming from the Catholic Church in the past couple years, but also, it just shows kind of like where the Catholic Church is at right now, they're kind of having a, to me, like, fight within themselves on how they, you know, move next through the system. Um, but you know, we've seen other systems tracking people and what they do. When you talked about it in the monologue, I thought about bills that have been filed to track women's periods after row and just, mm -hmm. you know, using all these different ways to track people and their behavior and their lives. Um, it's, of course, an invasion of privacy and homophobic and just disrespectful on top of other things. So, yeah. yeah so and clearly, 
it's not just morality cops don't exist just in the Catholic faith. They're morality cops, you know, who are Protestant and Methodist and you know, Pentecostal and all kinds of other religions. Just these people who decide that they are the final arbiters of, of what sins are and what sins are, you know, more significant than other sins. And this group of people are so outraged that these priests or some priests are on these sites. Thirty percent of all priests, according to this report, are gay, and it just raises all kinds of questions about celibacy and the restrictions that are still a part of the uh, priesthood and being a Catholic priest, not being able to have a family, taking a vow of celibacy, not uh, being able to engage in, in sexual activity. Uh, obviously, the majority of kids who have been molested by priests, not all, but the majority of, of the lawsuits that we've seen have involved priests molesting boys. So the Catholic Church got a lot of issues to deal with, but it does not help to have priests, you know, tracking the conduct of other priests. Uh, but let's talk about, Erica, this this crazy thing that happened with this medical tourist case. We, we know four Americans uh, crossed the border into Mexico. Three are going with a friend who's getting a cosmetic procedure. They're mistaken uh, for some kind of Haitian drug cartel or drug gang the mexican cartel is like you're trying to infringe on our our turf they shoot they kill they kidnap you know they kill two they kidnap they move them from stash house to stash house they're finally found and now the cartel comes forward with a note an apology note and offers up like five people is this the court cartel saying we don't want the wrath of the u.s government raining down on the cartel? I mean, I think that's truly part of it. I mean, they're not like they already don't have the wrath of the U.S. government raining down, but I guess they don't want any additional beef, you know, out of this. But, you know, when I was been reading about this case, I've been thinking about just the number of Americans that go to Mexico in particular. You know, you know, we're in California, air, close to Arizona, southern Arizona. My mother lives in Tucson. Her friends go across to Mexico all the time for dental work is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's 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 kind of a supply and demand and a cost issue, right? I mean, I think the reason why there's so much medical tourism um, is because healthcare costs are out of control here, particularly for people who are elderly. I mean, and these are, you know, sometimes procedures that are essential procedures are not just like, let me get cosmetic surgery. It's like, you know, literally like, you know, necessary um, functions that should be somewhat affordable in the U.S., but are not, people feel the need to kind of, uh, in some cases, increasingly we're seeing for this case, take their lives into their own hands to go across the border. I don't think most people think of it that way. I think because there's so many trips back and forth to Mexico every single day that are, you know, uneventful. Um, But, you know, this, this case highlights the risk that can happen and the fact that, you know, the politics of both countries are kind of, you know, out of our control and you have to be really aware of where you're going. Yeah. And, it does raise a lot of issues about traveling internationally and checking uh, these websites that tell Americans where they shouldn't be traveling and telling Americans where it's dangerous. And apparently the city where these four Americans went is on that list of uh, a city in Mexico that uh, presents and poses certain you know, dangers to Americans. Most people don't think about it. They don't check those travel warnings. They go, as you said, if you're on a border state like California or Arizona or Texas, you're probably just going in and out of Mexico without thinking about it too often. But this case is really just so tragic, Kennedy. I'm thinking about the three people that uh, went along with the one woman, how horrible 
she must feel that survivor's remorse you get your friends hey come go with me to help me drive that's what we're hearing is why the friends were there and apparently her mother or at least some other family members told them this can be dangerous don't do it and they went anyhow one friend we know stayed back at the hotel because she didn't have her uh paperwork or identification so she didn't go she was there with the luggage she's calling she can't get through to anyone then i guess the fbi just shows up uh, at the mother's house or one of the, the family members' houses. Uh, do you think this is, you know, kind of a wake-up call for, I hear what Erica is, is saying about the cost of medical care. And yes, there are so many people that cannot afford medical care in the U.S., can't afford health insurance. And their only option they think might be, let me go to Mexico to get, you know, dental work or cosmetic surgery. But is this, you think, going to be a wake-up call that even if you can't afford it in the U.S., you just got to kind of suck it up? You know, this is not an option? Yeah, I mean, I'm in Houston. I'm in Texas. And, and obviously, you know, in a place like this where we have not only we travel a lot of back and forth, but we have a lot of people who are from Mexico and, you know, from all these international countries. And they're feeling some type of way about it, too, because... Like you said, it definitely puts a spotlight on a very tragic situation, on a situation that we're facing in the United States on not only medical tourism, but like just international relations in general and how we communicate with different governments. So I don't know how the system or the government is going to react to this. Um, You know, our Texas senator, John Cornyn, said nothing, and I quote, like nothing's off the table when it comes to how we're going to go from Mexico, how we're going to deal with Mexico from this. So, I mean, it's... What what did he mean? What what was he alluding to when he says nothing's off the table? I reached out to the office, haven't heard anything yet, but I, from my guess, um, it definitely feels like they want to come with an aggressive approach. They're, you know, and I think that's why they offered up the letter, like, we're so sorry but at this point, like you killed Americans that you mistaken for, you know, it's just, it doesn't look good. And it's, and people died and um, they didn't have to. Yeah. This is like and, a so. movie, like a bad episode of queen of yeah. the South or something. The cartel, like, I guess they chose five dudes. Like, okay, you got to be the sacrificial lambs. You got to be the ones that are going to get arrested, prosecuted. I don't know. Death penalty. Who knows what happens to those five guys who now are, you know, we're being told are the ones who did it. We don't know if they did it or not, right? We, we, you know, the the way the cartel operates, obviously we won't know if they're the real culprits or not. But I just find this whole note thing, like, what? We're supposed to say, oh, you know, no harm, no foul. We accept your apology. Thanks for the nice right, note like, and okay, move on. <laughs> we're all friends again. You know, it's cool. I, and that's another thing. I'm, I'm really interested to see, like, how the in- investigation goes on. You know, what made them think that they were... Haitian drug cartel smugglers with North Carolina plates, you know, like, how does it like, how did that compute? Like, how did they, you know, put that together? So I'm really interested to see where it goes. And it's just really sad. I feel bad for the family sending love to them. But it's also like, how is the U.S. going to move from here? Like, what are we going to do next? I think is really important to watch. Well, it's clear that the cartel believes there's going to be some action that is going to be swift and it's going to be aggressive, which is why, like, overnight they come up with this, you know, apology note and turn over the folks that did it or the alleged people who did it. So you're right. We have to track this and see what happens. Uh, Erica, RuPaul says, look, this, you know, 
slate of recent legislation targeting drag shows is just about distracting from the real issues that these lawmakers in certain states were voted to do, like the issues of, you know, distracting from the issues on jobs and health care and keeping our kids safe. Uh, Do you think the Emmy-winning entertainer speaking out on this issue will have any impact, a more significant impact, given, you know, his stature uh, and given, you know, his position in the, the drag show world? I mean, I wish I could say yes uh, to that, but I mean, we got to keep in mind that most of the Republican lawmakers in these different states, I'm thinking of Tennessee in particular, which has passed a law against uh, any sort of drag performances within, I forget how many feet of children. Um, I mean, they're, they're passing these bills. They're kind of whipping up this level of hate to, to, to get their base energized. This is all about, you know, appealing to the worst base instincts of Americans and their voters. And so, having anybody connected with RuPaul's Drag Race speaking out is just more fuel for the fire, right? That's just, we're sticking it to the libs even more. Look, they're upset. Look, you know, anything that basically gets a reaction is going to actually kind of play into their hands. I mean, of course, that leaves, you know, the rest of us with not a lot of tools in the tool shed because, you know, if people don't say anything, then it's, you know, being silent in the face of you know, clear discrimination and hate, but at the same time, it's like speaking up and making it a big deal also causes, um, you know, a reaction that I think a lot of these lawmakers really are going for. Um, so I don't know, it's kind of a catch 22. Yeah. What do you think, Kennedy? You think it helps or hurts to have someone as, you know, influential and as, you know, who has such a big platform as RuPaul get into this basic culture war that's happening uh, in some of these Republican states? I think it's a big deal. Like RuPaul is, I should like not the face of drag race, but definitely one of the faces of drag race. Um, obviously RuPaul's drag race is a cultural shift. Like we all saw it on the main, um, stage and we got to love it, got to learn about this community. And so I think it's very important that he's speaking out about it, especially when they're banning it in entire States and, you know, just seeing coverage on this, especially, like I said, I'm in Texas, we are conservative here and very red. Um, they're going even beyond that and and trying to create legislation that, you know, bans homosexual married couples from getting tax credits and and banning them from certain places. So it's beyond just drag races. And you also mean I mention- banning homosexual couples from traveling or living or visiting no, from, certain from places? Getting, from getting certain uh, benefits, okay. getting certain benefits through legislation. Right. And, um, and so obviously that's another way to just be discriminatory towards a specific community that you don't like. And also it's important to mention that, you know, being um, in drag and a lot of these people who do this for a living, this is their way to make money. So you yeah. can't just ban something. It's entertainment. You... It's entertainment. Yeah. It's, it's like, again, livelihood. So yeah. more morality policing, you know, these lawmakers deciding what, you know, what is acceptable to the American people? And I'm with RuPaul on this. Go do the job that you were elected to do. Focus on health care. Focus on jobs. Focus on, you know, clean air and clean water. And, and let these folks make a living and do what they do, which is entertain folks. After some news, sports and traffic, my justice or the KBLA justice correspondent Dion Raymond will be here to give us the latest from inside the courtroom in the federal prosecution of L.A. City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. Stay with us. KBLA Talk. 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. Fresh for everyone. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
All right, I'm back, and I'm joined in this segment by KBLA's Justice Correspondent, Dion Raymond. She has been in the courthouse all day, uh, downtown federal court, Los Angeles, in that trial, the federal prosecution of L.A. City Council member Mark Ridley-Thomas. Welcome, Dion. Hi, Ariva. How are you? Fantastic. So today was an interesting day in court because Mark Ridley-Thomas, who is fondly known by his friends and colleagues as MRT, has a son named Sebastian Ridley-Thomas, who's known as SRT. And all of the reports that I'm getting says that today was not about MRT, but about SRT. So what was the prosecution trying to do by spending so much time in its case focused on Sebastian Ridley-Thomas? That is correct, Ariva. What they were trying to do was to further their argument um, about conspiracy and bribery by showing or alleging, asserting, if you will, that his admission to um, the School of Public Policy and to the School of Social Welfare, the um, tuition pay, the scholarship, the the, um, appointment as a professor in practice were all unusual. But the defense really clapped back. In fact, they clapped back so hard, Ariva, I would call this Clap Back Thursday. Okay, I love it. Clap Back Thursday. Okay. What did the defense team do? I know they poked a lot of holes in the theory about the size of the so-called contract that was a part of the quid pro quo. We've been hearing for months now that this contract was a big $8 million contract that sounds like a big you know, amount of money, a large amount of money. But it turns out that that wasn't, the right number. Tell us about that Not contract. Not at all. Yes, and, and the contract and, and other things, Ariva, was the defense making good um, what they said they would do in opening statement that the evidence would show that the um, prosecution was not telling the whole story. And so part of their... Um, their this is the contract, she- right, Dion, that the Correct. county had with the University of Southern California, USC, right? Yes, a telehealth contract that they were seeking an amendment to that was supposedly going to generate a, a lot more income for the University of California. And what we found today. No, no, USC, University was, of Southern California. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> what we found today was that USC was not going to generate $8 million, but actually $500,000 over a five year period. Wait and a minute. Not wait, to wait, wait a minute. That. 500000 over five years, so we're talking about roughly a hundred thousand dollars a year going to USC, and not eight million dollars. How can the prosecution make? That's a huge mistake. That ain't just a, a mathematical error. That sounds like a, a purposeful mislead. Absolutely, and and these are the kinds of things that they that they promised that they would show to the jury, among other things, Ariva. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, with regards to um, SRT. Uh, and the allegation that his admission was unusual, what the defense showed today is that they actually do have what they call VIP admits mm. and not only for rich students. And also, um, so break that down that, for us. Yeah. What's a VIP mm-hmm. admission? It's an exception. In other words, so a, a very important person, such as a, an individual who um, donates a large amount of money an endowment, if you will. And so, um, or an Dr. elected Clapp. official, because I think the testimony also showed that former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger probably was considered a VIP for his uh, admission as well. Or, or was he not admitted, but he was a professor? Does that same VIP treatment apply for professorships? 
Well, that argument goes to um, hiring individuals as professors of practice. And um, Dr. Nichols of the School of uh, Public Policy, his position was is that he would not have wanted someone hired to their department if it were if they were found to have um, founded allegations of sexual harassment. If, in other words, if they were true. And so what the defense brought out was that in fact, his same department had hired um, Arnold Schwarzenegger around 200, 210 with sexual harassment allegations. So basically the defense show, wait a minute, USC, you, you, you're coming into this courtroom telling us you don't hire folks that have sexual harassment allegations against them, but we got receipts that you hired Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2010 and he had sexual harassment allegations lodged against him. So what you're telling us Correct. is not true. Correct. And also uh, what the evidence showed is that he called for an extensive background check of SRT and that after that extensive background check, he was clean. He being the hiring person in charge at USC that hired Sebastian Ridley Thomas. Well, actually, it was a joint hire between the School of Public Policy and the School of Social Welfare. And the deans of both of those schools signed his hiring letter. This particular um, witness was the vice dean of the School of Public Policy at the time, who said that if their department had hired a professor or SRT after an investigation proved that sexual harassment allegations were true, he said he would have resigned his administrative position. And he was the person who requested an extensive background check of SRT. And that background check came back clean. So came help clean. us understand, uh, Dion, how is the prosecutor going to make the argument that the SRT hiring was somehow uh, unique? and a basis of a quid pro quo when USC has this VIP hiring process. And it appears, based on what you're saying, the testimony showed today that he fit perfectly into that VIP process. Well, you know, Ariva, you know very well as an attorney that these are the, the pieces of the puzzle that the defense is going to argue in closing for the jury to put this all together and to argue down. So every day, Dion, one of the things we like to get from you is a thumbs up, thumbs down in terms of who had the better day. We know trials are like marathons. You know, some days are good uh, for the prosecution. Some days are good for the defense. But it takes a long time oftentimes, and particularly in a case like this where we know it's going to go five weeks before the jury will get all of those puzzle pieces that you just uh, identified. But if you had to say today who had the better day in court? Well, let me put it this way, Ariva. At one point, uh, one of the witnesses, Dr. Clapp, stopped while a question was pending for him to answer and said he needed to consult with his lawyer for USC. So not only did the defense clap back, they clapped back hard, and I would give it to the defense today. Well, you gave it to the defense yesterday, and you gave it to the defense today, so I would say the defense is having a good start of this trial again. Trials are long processes. You can't uh, get too excited, too emotional uh, one way or the other because there are ups and downs. There are going to be lots of other witnesses that are going to come into that courtroom, but it's, a, it's shocking to me that the prosecution's preparation wasn't better. 
How is it that they could tell the public and tell the jurors that we're talking about an $8 million contract, and now you say we're really talking about a contract not to exceed $547,000 over five years, and how is it that there can be a VIP admissions process uh, that, again, had not been included in any of the documentation, any of the reporting that we've seen. I mean, this case has been heavily reported on by reporters from some of the top news outlets in this city and in this state. It's the first time we're hearing about the VIP admission process at USC. Yes. I mean, it does make you sit up and and wonder. And again, Ariva, this is the defense doing exactly what it said at opening, It that essentially you've got the, the government telling you a story with the left hand and holding other parts of the pages that they've torn out with the other. Well, thank you, Dion. Always uh, good to see you, my friend. Great reporting. I know you will be back in that courtroom first thing tomorrow morning and will continue to give us gavel-to-gavel coverage on this trial that's being watched uh, by folks all over the city of Los Angeles, all over the state of the county, and I venture to say all over the country. Uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, a very prominent African-American elected official that has served this community for decades on trial. Uh, I'd venture to say the trial of his life, probably the most significant thing he's ever had to do in his career uh, being prosecuted by the United States of America. A great coverage today, Dion. We will see you tomorrow. When we come back, when we come forward, more with my uh, contributors as we continue to break down today's trending news. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back, and in this hour, I'm joined by L.A. Times columnist Erica Smith and Kennedy Sessions. She's a Metro reporter at Cron, and we're talking about today's trending news. A couple of stories that really caught my attention today. Kennedy, apparently the district attorney in Manhattan uh, invited Donald Trump to come and testify before a grand jury. His lawyers have, at this point, declined to make him available, but... What my friends at the Department of Justice and other prosecutors tell me is that when the grand jury invites you to show up uh, and you don't, that's their last opportunity to say, tell us your story. But that's pretty much a signal that they're getting ready to issue an indictment. So we may be seeing not out of Georgia, but out of New York, the first indictment of a former president of the United States. What will that do to our already partisan uh, world where we already are so divided? What do you think if if this is really true and that district attorney sitting in Manhattan is going to issue an indictment soon, maybe in a week or so, uh, because I don't think Donald Trump is going to show up at that grand jury. What what happens to our partisan politics? I think you're muted. Oh, sorry, I got it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's going to be a big shift. It's going to be a very big thing. Um, One, because he is definitely the front runner when it comes to the nomination for the Republican Party going into 2024. And he has the base, um, you know, like 100%. They, they're going to write for him. DeSantis is really trying to, and Nikki Haley and a couple other names have been trying to buy for that spot. But it's obvious Donald Trump is still their number one. So 
an indictment. Do I think it's going to change voters' minds or even the Republican base? Maybe not, but definitely we're going to see a shift in the way they talk about Donald Trump. We're going to see a shift in how a lot of the crimes he's done over the past couple of years are going to come into the spotlight. And it's not going to be good for him. So, you know, yeah. What do you think, Erica? Do you think some of those more cons- uh I'm going to call moderate to the extent they even still exist. Moderate Republicans say, okay, this is the last straw. Maybe they've been waiting for this shoe to drop. Uh, They now know that Tucker Carlson hates Donald Trump passionately. They now know what the other Fox hosts think of Donald Trump. They know that they want to move on. So they know Fox is ready. And maybe Fox is waiting for someone to say, uh, you know, from the Republican Party, we can move on. And maybe an indictment from the district attorney in New York, not the Department of Justice, but a, a, you know, a state, a local county district attorney indicting. Will that be the shoe that uh, drops that allows Republicans to say, boy, bye. (laughs) I mean, I think at the very least what it does is it, you know, it further divides the Republican Party, right? I do think it picks off some of the more moderate folks who have been wobbling and on the fence. But I think, you know, I think the, you know, to previous comments, I think the base is going to still, you know, ride or die with them. I think, you know, these are the people who are been watching Fox News and other far right, you know, in ecosystems that don't even really know what T- Tucker Carlson really said about Donald Trump because that isn't being reported there. So, I mean, there's a good, you know, 30, 40 percent probably of Republicans that are going to stick with him no matter what. And the fact that he's being indicted is just going to make them love him even more because, again, it's a reverse psychology, right? It's, you know, he's pissing off the liberals. So therefore we can, you know, we love him more and, you know, even more so if more people, more DAs are inclined to indict him after this first foray maybe people start finally start to show some backbone and actually charge him in other states including georgia which we've talked about in the past um but i think this is also in some ways a boon for desantis and some other folks who might see an opportunity to use this to drive a wedge to pick up more supporters but i guess for the rest of us who would probably never vote for desantis or trump this is just going to be popcorn time yeah i can't (laughs) imagine though to your point erica that if i'm in this race and that's nikki haley that's Perhaps uh, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo and DeSantis, if your opponent has been indicted for, uh, you know, financial crimes related to election laws involving an ex-porn star, how can you not use that? Kennedy, you got to use that. That's like perfect commercial material. That's like, you know, writing your commercial with Stormy Daniels and, and, you know, all those headlines, you don't think the Nikki Haley's of the world and Mike Pence's of the world going to, you know, be gangster enough to start, you know, flooding the airwaves with Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit or something to conjure up some image that this dude might be going to jail, y'all. So don't yeah. waste your vote on him. because He might be in a prison cell. It's so funny because I'm sure they're going to try, but like we talked about, all of this stuff costs money. And right now, if we look at it, Trump has a lot more accessibility money than they do right now. At the end of the day, when all this stuff initially came out with Stormy Daniels and, you know, the Republican Party, um, even talking about like how many divorces he's had and they're supposed to be super fundamental and like, okay, obviously not, you know, like all of that drama happened then and it's like, they know he's doing crime, but they don't really care. Like they, they're still gonna ride with him. Nikki Haley and DeSantis, they're gonna try as much as they can to put him in the dirt. But it's like the chokehold that he has right now on the base 
is very strong and very powerful. And I don't know, they're going to need to get their money up and get some fundraising done if they're going to try to do all these attack ads. I know, Erica, that it, it looks like Donald Trump is literally Teflon Don and nothing can touch him. But come on, he's a person. He's human. He, he literally he's not God. I mean, and, and something is going to bring him down. And I'm, I got my money on that Harvard trained district attorney in New York who was a little asleep at the switch when he got elected. But I think maybe got inspired by what was happening down in Georgia and said, I don't want that black woman D.A. to beat me to this. Let me wake up. Let me do what I was elected to do. I, I, I don't know. I got my money on him that he's going to indict Donald Trump. And it is going to be a shift. Now, I don't I'm not going to sit here and speculate that the entire uh, base moves away from him. But there are people, educated people, people who do watch something other than Fox. They may watch Fox, but they watch other shows, too. I'm thinking that this might be his downfall. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around people like this, uh, you know, Jenna uh, Ellis lady, lawyer, how these professional people who worked all their lives, got degrees, have practices, have built up their reputation, why they would go into a courthouse, why they would sign pleadings and tell blatant lies, knowing that they're putting their livelihood at stake, knowing that in this case, as Jenna Ellis, you're putting your law license at stake. It's hard to imagine that people, you know, but we know cults exist and, and many of these people are, are acting like they're in a cult. But what do you think, Erica? Do you think, I'm right. <laughs> or you think nothing I think changes. I mean, I think that this case, I do think there'll be some sort of indictment, whether it's, you know, New York, whether it's Georgia, somebody will indict him at some point. And I think that it's either case or multiple cases will shadow him through the campaign. I don't think we're going to get a swift resolution. I think it's going to drag out through the campaign season because his legal team's going to fight it because as we said, he has money. Um, and I think it's just going to be this shadow thing that's going to either benefit him in the sense of people start to go behind, come behind him again and cheer him on because he's him and people identify with him in some way. Or it's the thing that drives people away. And, you know, whether it's Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, you know, is able to capitalize on it somewhat. I mean, my money is still on DeSantis getting the nomination, but I could totally really? be wrong. Um, but I think that I do think this these kinds of legal cases will probably only hurt Trump, if only because it'll divide the party. And then that creates openings for other candidates. But, you know, we'll see. All right, uh, Kennedy, I heard you say, like, really? <laughs> when she, when Erica said her money is on DeSantis, <laughs> did you say really? Like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure, because I haven't heard that before at least when we've been talking in you know my circles that we've been talking about who we think the republican primary nomination is going to be i've we've always also said trump and then nikki haley came into the conversation and we were like okay whatever it's still gonna be trump um and even i saw i think i saw i saw a segment that even i saw a fox news segment where they were in uh florida at like a diner and every single person said trump in florida and I was like, oof, DeSantis, mm. if you can't even get Florida, you know, Floridians to vote for you, ooh, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm My money is on Trump, too. Uh, I think DeSantis may go the way of a Scott Walker. You know, a lot to do about <laughs> nothing. I think he flames out. I think his brand of politics, you know, there's only one Donald Trump. 
and all these folks that try to emulate Donald Trump uh, can't do it. It doesn't work for them. And, you know, that, that, I don't know why you would want to, but to the extent people do want to, it just doesn't work. And I think all these culture wars that, you know, DeSantis is stoking over school curriculum, over drag shows, over, you know, rights to abortion. Don't every, say gay. Don't say gay. <laughs> yeah. When he gets that outside of Florida, I think it's like DOA, you know, when he tries to move that agenda outside of his base, his community, his state, I think he gets wholesale rejected. And let's face it, the guy is kind of grumpy, you know, for all of Donald Trump's flaws, he did have some kind of weird, I hate to use this word charisma. Yeah, yeah. I hate to say it, but let's be, you know, let's be honest. He was on TV. He was an entertainer. You know, he had that thing about him. He could talk to people. And remember, he used to hang out in clubs in New York with Al Sharpton. He was loved. Yep. Yeah, you know, so he, he had a base of folks that used to roll with him. Ron ain't hanging out with nobody that looks like Al Sharp. That is not how he get down. <laughs> that is not his get down. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't see Ron going very far. Uh, he's lucky, I think, if he gets elected as governor again. But ladies, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to see you, Erica. Always a pleasure to see you, Kennedy. Brilliant insights as usual. Come back real soon so we can uh, fight about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump a little more. All right, my second hour. Experts are going to debate the limits of presidential executive orders and Joe Biden's student loan debt relief efforts. Also, in the second hour, I'm taking your calls. Give us a call at 1-800-920-1580 after some news, traffic, and sports. Uh, more on the student loan debt crisis right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Personalized discounts and more. Get a quote in as little as six minutes at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Discounts and coverage selections not available in all states or situations. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The Lakers are back in action Friday night against Toronto. The Clippers host the New York Knicks Saturday afternoon. Tough break for Kevin Durant and the Phoenix Suns. Durant will miss the next four to six weeks with a grade two ankle sprain. In honor of Women's History Month, I want to introduce you to Sandra Morgan, the first African-American female team president in the NFL. Morgan is in her second year as president of the Las Vegas Raiders. Morgan, a Las Vegas native, is a former city attorney and was chairperson of the Nevada Gaming Control Board before joining the Raiders. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron at Original Taco Pete's. Come in today for our tasty seasoned black taco. We're at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw or call 323-348-4441. Hi, I'm civil rights attorney Ariva Martin, host of Ariva Martin in real time. Weekdays 4 to 6 p.m. right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 4.35 p.m. for your daily download on the federal bribery trial of L.A. City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. The case is sure to have many twists and turns, and our program will be the show of record in the case of United States versus Mark Ridley Thomas. We have our own seasoned justice correspondent who will be checking in with us to keep you up to speed on the daily details of this high-profile legal case. Be sure to tune in to Ariva Martin in real time weekdays at 4.35 p.m. for United States versus Mark Riley Thomas, only on KBLA Talk 1580. Order in the court. court. court.
The Justice Department released a damning report about Louisville police after it launched an investigation following the death of Breonna Taylor. That report found that the Louisville Police Department had engaged in years of unlawful and unconstitutional policing, especially targeting black people. President Biden today proposed his third budget of his presidency and his first to a divided Congress. The $6.8 trillion budget plan seeks to increase spending on the military and a wide range of new social programs while also reducing future budget deficits. California suspended a $54 million contract with Walgreens yesterday over the pharmacy's chain's decision not to distribute abortion medication in at least 20 states, including states where abortion is legal. And John Fetterman, the junior senator from Pennsylvania, is keeping up with his work while being treated for severe clinical depression at Walter Reed Hospital. Fetterman was told that his case was treatable and guaranteed he would get back to his old self. Jenna Ellis, a lawyer who represented former President Donald Trump after his loss in the 2020 election, admitted in a sworn statement released yesterday that she had knowingly misrepresented the facts in several of her public claims that widespread voting fraud led to Donald Trump's defeat. And Patients Beyond Borders and International Healthcare Travel Agency says that pre-pandemic, some 1.2 million American citizens traveled to Mexico for elective medical treatment, mostly cosmetic, complex dentistry, and bariatric treatments. But the safety of the medical practices are separate from the safety of the areas America's journey through to get there. The creator and host and producer of RuPaul's Drag Race slammed what he called stunt queen politicians and said recent legislation targeting drag shows is just a technique to distract from the real issues that they were voted into office to focus on, such as jobs, health care, keeping our children safe, and making our school systems better. A black couple has settled their lawsuit against a real estate company which had estimated the pair's Northern California home to be worth nearly $500,000 less than when a white friend pretended to be its owner. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop shop for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this second hour, I am taking your phone calls at 1-800-920-1580. And also, if you are watching and listening to Ariva Martin in real time on our YouTube station, drop me a comment, ask a question. We will read it and talk about it on air. To cancel or not to cancel? That was the question President Joe Biden had to respond to uh, last August. And he arrived at an answer at the end of August. And when he decided he would cancel up to $20,000 in student debt for federal borrowers making under $125,000. The president's announcement followed months of debate from lawmakers and advocates on both sides of the aisle on how much student loan debt to cancel and if anything should be canceled at all. Now, up to 20 million people could have their debt entirely cleared under the president's plan. But the plan was met with cries that it was unfair. Many folks says, well, why should some students get their debt relieved when I had to work hard to pay off my debt? Democratic lawmakers said, look, canceling student loan debt would be good for the economy. 
They also said it would help to close the racial wealth gap and allow borrowers to recover from the pandemic. On the other side of this debate, the Republicans, who claim that canceling student loan debt would hurt taxpayers, benefit the rich, and was unfair to so many Americans who had already paid off the debt that they had agreed to take on. Now, we know just two weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments over the legality of Biden's executive order to cancel student loan debt. We may not get a decision from the court until June of this year, but the debate, the debate over whether it's fair to cancel student loan debt, who should benefit from it, and if the president actually has the power to make such an executive order, that debate continues as 26 million people who have applied for relief wait. And many of those are waiting in agony because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they're going to have to pay some exorbitant student loans back. And many are really uh, being crushed by the monthly payments as a result of thousands and thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in student loan debt. My guests in this hour have different opinions on what should be the outcome of the student loan debt relief debate. When we come forward, attorney Sophia Stanley and Jim Burling, VP of Legal Affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation, join me to debate the issue of student loan debt. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. He's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, I'm taking your phone calls. I want to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-800-920-1580. And for those of you who are watching the show, streaming on our KBLA YouTube channel. Make sure you drop us a comment. Ask a question. We want to hear from you as well. I am joined in this hour by attorney Sophia Stanley. Welcome, Sophia. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Reva, for having me. Oh, absolutely. And also uh, here on this student loan debt relief debate is Jim Burley. He's the VP of Legal Affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Welcome, Jim. Hey, it's nice to be with you. All right, guys, this debate about student loan debts, I I guess at the heart of the issue is the question of fairness. So what we've seen, some of the Republicans that have pushed back on the uh, student loan debt relief that was proposed by Joe Biden and actually was enacted until this lawsuit or several lawsuits There are actually six lawsuits that were filed. The one that's uh, now before the Supreme Court is uh, the plaintiffs in that lawsuit are six Republican-led states, six Republican uh, attorney generals joined together to sue the Biden administration. The case made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. We know we won't get a decision until June. But what do you make, Sophia, of of this this issue that Republicans have that, hey, it's not fair. Like, you know, I, I signed up for a loan or I borrowed money years ago and I had to work my butt off to pay off my loan. So why should some students today have uh, have it easier why should they get their loans paid off when i didn't get mine paid off 
I think that the fundamental premise of their argument is inherently un-American. So as Americans, each generation should do better than the next. And so in essence, it's kind of when your grandma says, oh, well, I had to walk 20 miles in the snow because there were no cars. Well, now, grandma, we have cars and some of them are automated, right? And so I think it's that inherent aspect that everyone has to actually be the same. That's the first part. The second part is the individuals who already paid off their student loan, they're not losing anything. So fairness is when I take something away from you, which is different than me giving something to someone else. So you paid off your student loans, that's great. You no longer have that debt, you no longer have your burden. But the question is whether or not those individuals who have been affected by an emergency, i.e. COVID, should get some semblance of reprieve. So that means they're getting something which is different than something being taken away from the class that is bringing this lawsuit. No, that's an excellent point about grandma, because you're right. <laughs> We're not walking to school uh, 20 miles in the snow. We do have cars. We have buses. We have trains. We have public transportation. We even have Uber and Lyft that grandma didn't have. So, yes, as we know better, we do better. That's what Maya Angelou taught us, right? Uh, so, Jim, I am troubled by these Republican lawmakers or the Republican attorney generals that got together these six states to sue because the what we know about the student loan debt is it will, in some ways, close the racial wealth gap. We know the racial wealth gap between whites and African-Americans is huge and it's continued to widen. So if paying off $20,000 in debt helps to close that gap, if it helps the entire economy, and as Sophia said, it, it gives some reprieve to those students who were impacted, as we all were, by COVID. Why do they have an issue with it? Why, why was this so important that these attorney generals decided they needed to band together to sue the Biden administration? Well, it's more than a question of fairness and unfairness. It's also a question of whether or not the president had the authority to do this in the first place. So why are they upset? They are upset because a lot of people who have worked hard to pay off their loans, uh, a lot of people who are poor people in rural areas of America never went to college and through taxes or fewer benefits that they are not going to get otherwise, they are paying for this. This is not free money that comes off of trees. This is money that has to be paid from somewhere. We're talking about roughly $440 billion that the Biden administration is doing for the relief of debts. That money is not going to come from nowhere. That has to come from somebody's pocket. So we're talking about people who didn't go to college. We're talking about people who went to college and paid off their debts. But this is a blunderbuss sort of action, just targeting a certain number of people that are happen to have college debt now. We have a problem with college costing too much across the board. Look, when I went to school, and I'm a grandpa, this is 40 <laughs> years ago, tuition was $600 a year for law school in Arizona. It's now $26,000 for the same tuition. That's far and above what inflation would, would take care of. But wait of. a minute, that's, Jim, that, that's a different issue. The cost of college and paying off student loan debt, those are two different issues and two wrongs don't make a right. And you talk about those folks in the rural community saying, okay, well, I didn't go to college. 
there are so many things that we do in this country, so many subsidies that we provide to one group that other groups don't benefit from. I can think of lots of things that my taxpayers' dollars go to. Let's start with schools. I happen to have kids, but those people who don't have kids, their tax dollars go to support public schools. They can say, well, wait a minute, I don't have any children, so why am I spending my tax dollars to support the you know the local school? Give that some thought, Jim. i got to take a couple of calls. Um, Sean, you're on the air calling from Oakland, California. Number one, like regarding the baby boomers and such, I mean, they essentially got the, got the, the greatest, greatest education lady. for free. And right now, the, the kids, and rightfully so that you said, are, are having to pay so much for college, and they're in debt with a mortgage when they get out of college. It's ridiculous. And, and the argument, I just want people to be a heads up. Because the Supreme Court is so important. Remember, people, when you vote, these judges get in there. And I know you know this, Ms. Martin, more than anybody, but the Supreme Court, John Roberts had said, what if Joe Blow, the working guy, doesn't go to college, but he gets a business loan? And and -and so-and-so, Joe B., goes to college and gets a loan but gets an excuse. That is the worst argument I've ever heard in my life. Okay, we want to encourage people to go to school. We also want to encourage people to have lower interest loans as we get through the economy, to take business loans if you don't go to college. But let's not put the two together. That is a red herring. And I'll tell you what, kids who have a mortgage as a payment for loans should have an excuse because they shouldn't have had to pay it in the first place. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sean, for calling in. You raise an excellent point. The PPP program, if you had a business, you were allowed to apply for funding during the, the pandemic to pay your employees. And that loan money was forgiven if you could show that you used it for certain designated categories like your payroll. So that's a benefit, Jim, that went to certain class of people, those who were business owners. So if I didn't own a business, I could also say, well, wait a minute. Why is the business owner getting that PPP money uh, when others did? I, I see you. Go ahead. Jump in, uh, Sophia. Uh, then I got to take another I, I, call. I'm going to add to that, Ariva, because also, too, to your point, Jim, those rural individuals that you're talking about, they were the highest percentage of individuals who also received COVID checks. Right. So if we're if we're making an us versus them and we're making a class distinction between people who have a education, whether undergrad or law school, making over a certain amount of money, they were not necessarily entitled to a covid check. And the reason that we provided covid checks to one set versus another is that we did an economic analysis and said by giving certain individuals money, it would then keep the economy going. They would spend more and it would keep money circulating throughout the system. So, again, a similar argument could be made in terms of when you um, either wipe away or you limit student loans, what it allows um, individuals to do is now to spend that money within the economy. They're spending it on homes or they're spending it on groceries or they're spending it with other small businesses or their rural um, counterparts. And and so again, it's really a benefit, not a detriment. And again, I yeah, think you can make all sorts of justifications for government spending money here, there, and the other where and all the benefits the government money is supposed to provide. But the fundamental question here is this is good use of $440 billion to forgive loan debts for people who are going to do better off in society than those people generally in the long term who do not. And it's a fundamental question that 
who should be answering that question is part of the problem of this case. Should it be the president doing it unilaterally or should it be Congress making this decision? Now, Congress has had every opportunity to provide loan relief if it wanted to. It debated the question in 2020 and said no. So does the president have the power to do it simply because he thinks it's fair when a, a large segment of Americans do not think it's fair? Uh, is the president the one authorized to do that unilaterally? I don't think so. And I think that's what this case is all about. Who has the authority to make a decision as to what is fair or not? Well, well Jim, let me, Jim, let me say this, president. Jim. We're going to get involved in terms of who has the authority and who has the legal standing to file this kind of lawsuit, because I think the case is on shaky ground when we get to the issues of standing, uh, as some of the questions that were asked by the justices during the oral argument. But to your point about people who go to college going to do better, we give subsidies to major corporations where the CEOs make a gazillion dollars. So when we're using our taxpayers to bail out big banks and the airline industry, and those CEOs are walking off with $40, $50 million in their you know, employee compensation. That is a poor way of spending money. And but I we do that, and nobody go, like nobody capitalism. gets all excited about the, co the corporate subsidies that we give, including the corporate tax breaks. But whenever it seems like we try to do anything for the little person, the little guy, the student, and you can't make over $125,000 and even get this debt. So we're not talking yeah, about the don't, ultra rich. Don't ask, don't ask me to support crony capitalism and yeah, a lot no, of the cash giveaways. Okay? We're not, not, I, not, I not asking you to support that, that but, but I, I think we got to talk about parity here. When we talk about little people, and I mean little meaning people who don't make a lot of money, it seems like whenever there's anything given to them, everybody gets excited about that, but we forget about all the money we spend in this economy to support major businesses. Like I have to take another call. Uh, Rick is on the line. Ricky, you're calling from San Clemente. You're on the air. Yeah, hey, thanks. Well, so here's my call, right? You know, the nature of government is that it allocates resource, and it's always, always done unfairly and unequally. There's winners and losers, right? That's Congress's responsibility. And, you know, the president just can't unilaterally do that. And number two... Um, you know, what's the next guy do? Hey, you know what? I'm going to eliminate tax debt. You know, what's, you know, I'm going to eliminate penalties and fees. I think John Roberts was spot on when he said, you know, should we forgive business loans? So it's going to spiral out of control. And if, 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 if the president really feels that strongly about it, go back to Congress and put something out there and make a deal. That's my that's my that's my speech. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. Thanks. Appreciate Bye. your comment. Sophia, you want to respond to that? Ricky and Jim seem to be making the argument that look, the president doesn't have the authority to do this, only Congress. So so and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. So the, the basis of the authority for uh this program is the Heroes Act. The Heroes Act was an act of Congress. And, and the act of Congress gave the authority to the Department of Education and the Department of Education is the one backing this program. And the reason I think that is extremely important is that- hey, Make the connection. The Department of Education is a part of the executive branch. Let's Thank just you make very that much. connection. Very clear. <laughs> but again, the authority is actual congressional authority that handed it over to the executive branch. So theoretically, when everyone keeps saying Biden unilaterally, that is literally incorrect. If this authority is congressional, and specifically, I just want to read just to make sure I don't get it wrong. 
specifically the HERO Act, the legislation that allows the Secretary of Education to, quote, waive or modify any student financial assistance program during a national emergency. So the only question is, is COVID not in a national emergency? No, that's not the question. The statute reads specifically, waive or modify any requirement or regulation applicable to the student financial assistance programs. Waive or modify does not mean forgive. When Congress has Wait. forgiven loans in the past, it has used the words forgive, repayment, uh, and words of that nature. It has never used these words to forgive a loan before. Now, Congress has not specifically given this express authority here. That is what the argument is about. And I look at the language of the statute. I don't see the authority there. Uh, and I don't think a majority of the court is going to find that either. I love it when my guests come with receipts and both Sophia and Jim are quoting from statute. So while we debate what the statute means, I'm going to take another call. And then I'll let you uh, give your interpretation of that statute, Sophia. But Fahima is calling from Washington, D.C. You're on the air, Fahima. Thank you for taking my call. I think it's quite telling that it really it wasn't until black and brown people were able to obtain education and they had open enrollment with public universities resulting in people being able to transition out of poverty did the price of education become surmountable with that of a mortgage because many of these people who are raising these objections 30 40 years ago they weren't paying the price of a mortgage to get education just like your guest suggested and i think it's really very telling that the price of education skyrocketed after black and brown people were able to acquire educational attainment thank you fahima for your comment sophia you wanted to say something about this statute that now has become the center of our debate in terms of whether it gives this authority to the Department of Education during the a public crisis like the pandemic. Go ahead. So, so I'm going to actually use what Jim said. So Jim said that it literally says waive, but waive does not mean forgive. I think that is that sounds literally like legal semantics. And that's actually why oftentimes people don't trust lawyers. Waive literally means forgive. I'm also going to jump on the last thing that the caller said. This is definitely racially based, and it's racially based based on something you also mentioned, Ariba, in the last segment, that a North California couple had to sue because there was a half a million dollar difference in the appraisal of their house when they represented that it was their house being Black owners versus their white friend. The reason that, that is really important is because of racism, because of systemic racism, you have black and brown individuals who do not have arguably a half a million dollars of assets with which to take an equity line, a loan against their house to then pay for their children's education. So the reason that's such a great example is again, there is to me a racial bias in the undertone. They're using executive authority. It is not an issue of executive authority. Again, the HERO Act gives the Department of Education, which is the executive branch, the authority. But this is really a race issue. And in us versus them, we're in our minds, especially from a GOP perspective, when they say rural working class, we think white. Anyone else is black when arguably black people are rural, white people are rural. Black people go to school, white people go to school. But I think there is definitely a racial undertone to this conversation, given the amount of black and brown people who have been forced from respectability politics to have to go to school. 
So, Jim, I know you got a lot to say to that. I, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds because I got to go to some news, sports, and traffic. But go ahead. I know yeah. you have a response I'm, I'm to that. I'm going to agree with Sophia <laughs> that there has been a great deal of racial problems with the way that the real estate markets have worked, the way that zoning has worked to exclude black and brown people out of good neighborhoods. That is systemic. The way to cure that is through education, but the prices of education have gone up for everybody. And to have a, if you want to have a targeted program to provide relief for people who are poor, that's one thing. But this Jim, Jim, I got to have you hold that thought. See, I thought you could get it done in 30 seconds. So after some news, sports and traffic, we're going to come back. You're going to get to make that point. And we're going to talk about the issue of standing, because I think these uh, plaintiffs have a standing problem. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm joined in this hour by attorney Sophia Stanley and attorney Jim Burling. He's the vice president of legal affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. And I'm taking your calls in this hour, 1-800-920-1580. Or if you're watching on our YouTube station, post a comment. Love to hear from you. Jim, you were in the middle of your response to Sophia's uh, comments about race and how this whole issue of student debt relief uh, has a racial uh, undertone. Do you want to finish that comment? Yeah, my, my basic comment is that education is expensive for everybody, no matter who they are. And yes, black and brown people, people of color have had a harder time having the money to afford that in the first place. They've been segregated out of neighborhoods, haven't been able to build wealth through their homes and real estate as other people have. And it's a serious problem. But this loan forgiveness program is really a a very untargeted and poor way of resolving what are basically deep societal problems. Yeah, Jim, it seemed like uh, your the Republican attorney generals, those six that are the plaintiffs in this action that made its way to the Supreme Court, and I assume you support their action. Is that accurate? I don't want to make that assumption without checking. We do support the lawsuit. We filed actually one of the first lawsuits challenging the student loan uh, forgiveness program on behalf of some students who were uh, made worse off by it. Okay, so you then are in support of this lawsuit before the Supreme Court, and there was a lot of buzz before the oral argument and really expectation that given the conservative makeup on the Supreme Court, that really Biden didn't have a fighting chance. But then the arguments happened, and the Solicitor General, who uh, argued the case on behalf of the government, Biden, got rave reviews. They said she just knocked it out the park, and folks started to shift, and they started to shift really because of some of the questions that were asked by Amy Coney Barrett in particular. And she really started to drill down on this question of standing. So, Sophia, for all the folks who are listening and watching who, uh, you know, maybe thinking I'm talking about when you're up on your feet, <laughs> when I use the word standing, help them understand standing and why these six states may have a standing problem. So, so standing is is really complex, and because of it, again, I very rarely read when I'm on camera, but I'm going to read. Every case filed in federal court has to demonstrate that the plaintiff would be injured by the policy, that the injury can be directly traced back to the defendant, 
and that the relief they're seeking would address those injuries. So first, they have to show that they would be injured. They have to show that it's the defendant that directly injured them and that whatever they are seeking would actually take away that injury. So it would put them back to square one. The reason that is standing that neither of the cases that are that are halting the student loan relief program have standing is that you cannot show that literally, for instance, if Jim literally gets $20,000, how does that hurt me? Whether or not I paid off my student loan, I have not paid off my student loan or 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 any iteration, I'm still in the exact same position that I'm in. That's the first part. The second part is the actual individuals who actually have brought it are bringing it on behalf of of um, the student loan companies. So the student loan company is not actually a defendant in this case. Arguably, the student loan company could say, okay, if a million, two million, three million dollars of, of debt that I thought was going to get paid is not being paid to me, they could argue harm. The state can't argue harm on behalf of someone else because that is by very nature indirect. There's one other aspect that I think that I'm forgetting, but I think for right now, that's probably enough for individuals. To <laughs> no, that's a great uh, layman's <laughs> definition of standing. And Jim, Amy Coney Barrett was going hard on the lawyer for the six states about this issue of standing saying, how does this hurt you? And Sophia is right. There's a uh, company, a loan company in Missouri that was held out as the company that would be harmed. And that company is not a party to the lawsuit. And in fact says that they did not ask request or in any way aligned with the Missouri attorney general, Republican attorney general from the state of Missouri that filed the lawsuit. And Amy is like, if this is the company, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, I should be more respectful. Uh, if this is the company that's being harmed, well, where are they? Why aren't they in this courtroom? Why aren't they a party to this lawsuit? And the answers that the uh, lawyer, and I think it was a lawyer from Nebraska, the AG from Nebraska that was arguing on behalf of these six states, didn't have a really good answer, Jim. So why is it that you didn't have the companies themselves be parties to these lawsuits? Well, I can't speak for the parties themselves, but I will tell you that is standing is a problem. I mean, conservative justices for a long time have been very skeptical about anybody being able to come into court to argue a case because they allege some kind of standing. The courts have been very clear. You have to have a special and unique injury to yourself, not to somebody else. And that has to be different from just being a taxpayer. So Sophia is absolutely right about that. Standing is a doctrine that is potentially in the way of this case going forward at all. In fact, we hesitated a long time before filing our suit because we had trouble finding somebody withstanding. We eventually did until the administration changed the rules. So our parties went away as far as standing. Now, the Nebraska Attorney General is arguing that the connection between the state of Missouri and the loan company that is chartered by the state of Missouri is close enough that an injury to the loan company is an injury to the state. That is what this case is going to turn upon, whether or not there is standing for the states to bring their case. Uh, and I think it's a very close question because as you correctly point out, Justice Barrett, among others, were skeptical of that. Uh, the liberal justices were especially skeptical, but it is a close connection. And I am not going to hazard a guess, actually, as to whether or not the court's going to find standing for the states. What? As far as the other lawsuit, there are two lawsuits here. One is brought on behalf of some individuals who claimed that by 
if this wasn't for the loan relief program, they might have been able to apply and get more relief. It's a very convoluted and frankly hard to understand and digest argument. I think on standing, they have an even more difficult time than the states do. Yeah, one of the things... Yeah, I'm not either. Uh, Jim, I'm not going to sit here and try to guess what these justices will do. We know we can probably all agree that the liberal judges are likely to support Biden going forward with this loan relief program. It looks like Amy Coney Barrett may, uh, you know, rule with the liberal justices. And then it becomes a question of, you know, maybe what Chief Justice Roberts does. We don't know what he's going to do. And then there's Brett Kavanaugh. We don't know what he's going to do. But I would be really, really disappointed if Justice Scalia, who has been the biggest defender of this concept of standing and not allowing folks to just run into a federal court or run to the Supreme Court to file lawsuits just because they don't like a particular policy and use the court as a way to oppose public policy. So Scalia, I'm hoping that this does not become a political issue for him, but that he well, rules well, in a way he's not around. Well, well, yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Justice Scalia is not around, but I hope those Republican judges or I shouldn't call them Republican, those conservative leaning judges that oftentimes voted with Justice Scalia when he was alive and on the court, that they don't use this as an opportunity to make a political vote, that they remain true to this concept that you can't just run into court because you don't like a policy, that you do have to have standing. And I don't know, Jim, about this argument that this company in in Missouri that is not a party to the lawsuit, and you're saying, well, it's chartered by the state of Missouri, and maybe that's a close enough connection. I don't know, because if the company is really being harmed, and they stood, you know, and they are in a position where they may lose millions and millions of dollars, why aren't they there? I don't think the justices are going to feel good about ruling that the state has standing when these companies don't show up in these lawsuits. The the argument that Nebraska made, such as it is, is that we get money every year from this loan company pursuant to the charter, and we're not going to get potentially the same amount of money. And the question is, are they really not going to get the same amount of money or not? What is the binding agreement that exists or that doesn't exist for the state of Missouri to get money from the Missouri Loan Company? Uh, And that is what the justices were having trouble with. Uh, And I think uh, they're going to continue to have trouble with it. If they do rule that the states have standing, it's going to be a very interesting ruling And we're going to learn a lot more about standing as a result. Yeah, I think the judges were uh, really, you know, suspect of the argument from the Nebraska Solicitor General and that his answer about the states losing revenues uh, didn't satisfy them. I, I felt like a very weak response. They hadn't perhaps thought about it, didn't know they'd get so hammered on that issue of standing. When we come forward more in this debate about student loans, is it fair that some folks' loans get paid off while others of us, like me, had to work our butts off to pay our student loan debt. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Today. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
I'm back and I'm talking in this hour, this last segment, really, with uh, Attorney Sophia Stanley and Jim Burling. He's the VP of Legal Affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. And we have a post on our YouTube channel. And the question has to do with if either of you know the difference between the Obama relief program and what Joe Biden has done. Sophia or Jim, I'm, I'm Sophia's not. Sophia's on mute. Were you trying to say something? Oh, go ahead, Jim. Jump in. No, I don't have a uh, firm understanding of that. I mean, the Obama relief program was something that was not challenged. It did not go to the costing of $440 billion like this one. Uh, and it was, I think, much more limited and targeted than what we're having now. Uh, so I, th I think it's a much as a political difference as a legal one, but I'm not aware of the details right now, the Obama one. Howard, that was a great question. We're going to try to get an answer to you. I don't have that answer either really quickly, but I do want to ask about this issue of helping the economy. So one of the arguments that Democratic lawmakers uh, make, Sophia, is that this canceling of student loan debt is going to help the economy. And I would imagine, Jim, you must be disagreeing with that assessment because I don't imagine you would disagree with the debt relief if you really believed it was going to help the economy. So uh, let me start with you, Jim, and then Sophia, you can respond. But Jim, do you believe that relieving debt for millions of students will in some ways help the economy it could be a short-term juice to the economy but the long-term implications of another 440 billion dollar debt you look at the potential of that raising inflation which is a tax on everybody especially the poor and middle class uh you look at the other implications of spending money that we don't have i think it could be in the long term a detriment to the economy although it would be a short-term juice and certainly it would be an advantage to the people who are getting that short-term relief, but it's not going to solve any systemic problems. Well, I, I don't know that it has to solve any systemic problem to be good for the economy. Sophia, Jim says, look, it's not going to end the racial wealth gap. I don't think anybody's making that argument, Jim. We, it says it could help. Obviously, if you don't have to pay off student loan debt, you might be in a better position to save money to make a down payment on a house. So it can definitely start... Uh, to chip away at that loan, uh, I mean, that, that racial wealth gap. Uh, go ahead, Sophia, you want to jump in? Uh, no, I, I agree 100%. And, and again, I think that we need to be really, really careful of defining poor and middle class as separate, as, as separate from the group of individuals we're talking about. Again, the group of individuals that we're talking about are individuals who make less than $125,000. In 2023, with the cost of inflation, that literally, when you're under that amount, you are either middle class, and for a huge subset of those individuals, they are theoretically poor. Because there's also two groups of individuals. There are individuals who have graduated and arguably, hopefully, are employed and using their degree. There's also a huge percentage of those individuals who took out loans but were not able to finish because the cost, even with the loan, was so um, detrimental or exhaustive that they couldn't actually finish. So you have a huge percentage of individuals who have student loans but don't have a degree. So arguably within this argument, they're part of the poor subset that we're talking about. That's the first part. The second part is 
literally putting money back into the hands of individuals regardless of race will 100% help the economy. Not only will it help the economy in terms of the spend, whether or not it's mortgages, food, um, uh, helping small businesses, it will also allow those individuals who will have to have better choice. So in particular, I personally know a number of individuals that if they did not have student loan debt would choose actual different jobs, specifically teaching jobs. The amount of people who have an undergrad or a higher degree who would love to teach, but if not for their student loan that is excessive, they literally can't afford it. So they're doing jobs that they don't want to do that are not purpose driven. But if in fact their student loan debt was absolved, they would be doing, they would be teaching, they would possibly be working for the government, they would be doing things that are more purpose driven, but arguably do not pay as much money. And so I think it gives choice and it makes us all a better society yeah, as well you, as economy. That's an excellent argument, Sophia. And I'm glad to hear that you're saying you know people personally. And I know people, I know young folks who graduated with their undergraduate degree went into teaching they went to teach for america and they did it for a couple of years and they said i can't do it if you live in a city like los angeles you live in a city like new york you live in chicago san francisco any big city you can't live on a teacher's salary without having two three four roommates uh you know sharing rental expenses because the rents in these cities are so expensive so jim if you knew and your organization knew, and those six attorney generals who filed this lawsuit, if they knew paying off this debt would help drive more teachers into a place like Nebraska, you're talking about rural areas. I, I have to imagine that places like Nebraska, and I know I'm from Missouri, I'm from St. Louis, I know that we have a difficult time attracting talent, the best and the brightest, to uh, oftentimes in Midwestern states and cities. So what what about this argument that doing so this will better the economy? So you're talking about providing subsidies for teachers. That's one thing that's completely different. Again, this is a very untargeted and unspecific way of dealing with an issue. If you want to create a program that's saying if you go teaching in a rural and urban areas, and there are programs like this, you can have your loans forgiven in that case, then Congress should do that. And that is certainly a much better targeted way of providing what you're talking about, more people going into teaching or jobs of that nature than you are by giving a carte blanche of millions of people relief, whether or not they really need it, uh, which isn't targeted at all. Where, yeah, every individual who gets relief is going to be better off. Their economy is going to be better off, but it's spending money in such an unfocused way is certainly not a good way of improving the economy. Is that your only issue, Jim? I'm just trying to get at the heart of what is your issue. And I don't mean you personally, but your organization. Is it that I mean, fact that this is not targeted? I'm, I'm trying to make sense no, of what no, your our, our primary funda- argument fundamental is. fundamental issue here is when the president <laughs> acts unilaterally without authority to do that, we find that there's a real separation of powers problem. And this is not specific to the Biden administration. Remember, the Trump administration was sued for similar unilateral acts 110 times by the attorney general of California, and the attorney general was successful in about two-thirds of those cases. The executive branch should act only when there is specific authority from Congress. This authority from the HEROES Act from 2003 is not nearly focused enough to provide the president with this kind of authority. If Congress wants to do this, fine, be my guest. That's not my business. But our business is to make sure that the various branches of government act within the scope of their authority. So you are totally convinced, Jim, that this statute that Sophia read 
that gives uh, the president power to make enactments, to waive student loan debt through the Department of Education during a public crisis. You are 100 percent convinced that we are 